Can Venters publicly call out Tull's crimes without a serious backlash? Zane Gray, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways, and it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. A $5 monthly donation gets you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thank you so much. The Arsène Lupin podcast is happening. Be sure to subscribe to our Gentleman Burglar's own show and tell your friends. Links can be found in the show notes. It looks like it's time to talk about the elephant in the room, the Mormonism in this story. First of all, I've got to say that Mormon people are some of the best people I've known. My parents, friends, colleagues, neighbors. I have a Mormon background. Most of the people I know locally are Mormon, and they're wonderful. I love them dearly. Mormons, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are great. They're my folks. The fact that I'm producing this book now isn't any reflection on them. The thing that's so nefarious about this book is its villain. It's not a person. It's systemic religious extortion used to build wealthy empires while neglecting the poor and needy. That's what it's all about. When the institutions we trust to take care of us that actually take way more than they give. Now, is this a uniquely Mormon or LDS problem? No. But it happened then, and it's happening now. Don't believe me? Check out 60 Minutes on CBS last week. This religious empire building they talk of in the book is still happening today. And so, like other topics that we've discussed over the years, racism, classism, poverty, things that these classic authors wrote about over a hundred years ago that were a problem then and are still a problem now, I'm afraid religious-oriented extortion is among them. I wish it wasn't, but here we are. Let's see if we can do better. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 7 of 12, by Zane Gray. Chapter 14, West Wind When the storm abated, Venters sought his own cave, and late in the night, as his blood cooled and the stir and throb and thrill subsided, he fell asleep. With the breaking of dawn, his eyes unclosed. The valley lay drenched and bathed, a burnished oval of glittering green. The rain-washed walls glistened in the morning light. Waterfalls of many forms poured over the rims. One, a broad, lacy sheet, thin as smoke, slid over the western notch and struck a ledge in its downward fall, to bound into broader leap, to burst far below into white and gold and rosy mist. Venters prepared for the day, knowing himself a different man. It's a glorious morning, said Bess in greeting. 
Yes, after the storm, the west wind, he replied. Last night, was I very much of a baby? She asked, watching him. Pretty much. Oh, I couldn't help it. I'm glad you were afraid. Why? She asked in slow surprise. I'll tell you someday, he answered soberly. Then around the campfire and through the morning meal, he was silent. Afterward, he strolled thoughtfully off, alone along the terrace. He climbed a great yellow rock, raising its crest among the spruces. And there he sat down to face the valley and the west. I love her. Aloud he spoke, unburdened his heart, confessed his secret. For an instant the golden valley swam before his eyes, and the walls waved, and all about him whirled with tumult within. I love her. I understand now. Reviving memory of Jane Witherstein, and thought of the complications of the present, amazed him with proof of how far he had drifted from his old life. He discovered that he hated to take up the broken threads, to delve into dark problems and difficulties. In this beautiful valley, he had been living a beautiful dream. Tranquility had come to him, and the joy of solitude and interest in all the wild creatures and crannies of this incomparable valley. And love. Under the shadow of the great stone bridge, God had revealed himself to Venters. The world seems very far away, he muttered. But it's there, and I'm not yet done with it. Perhaps I never shall be, only how glorious it would be to live here always and never think again. Whereupon the resurging reality of the present, as if in irony of his wish, steeped him instantly in contending thought. Out of it all, he presently evolved these things. He must go to Cottonwoods. He must bring supplies back to Surprise Valley. He must cultivate the soil and raise corn and stock, and most imperative of all, he must decide the future of the girl who loved him and whom he loved. The first of these things required tremendous effort. The last one, concerning Bess, seemed simply and naturally easy of accomplishment. He would marry her. Suddenly, as from roots of poisonous fire, flamed up the forgotten truth concerning her. It seemed to wither and shrivel up all his joy on its hot, tearing way to his heart. She had been Aldring's masked rider. To Venter's question, what were you to Aldring, she had answered with scarlet shame and drooping head. What do I care who she is or what she was, he cried passionately. And he knew it was not his old self speaking. It was this softer, gentler man who had awakened to new thoughts in the quiet valley. Tenderness, masterful in him now, matched the absence of joy and blunted the knife edge of entering jealousy. Strong and passionate effort of will, surprising to him, held back the poison from piercing his soul. Wait, wait, he cried as if calling. His hand pressed his breast 
and he might have called to the pang there. Wait. It's all so strange, so wonderful. Anything can happen. Who am I to judge her? I'll glory in my love for her, but I can't tell it, can't give up to it. Certainly he could not then decide her future. Marrying her was impossible in Surprise Valley, and in any village south of Stirling. Even without the mask she had once worn, she would easily have been recognized as Oldring's rider. No man who had ever seen her would forget her, regardless of his ignorance as to her sex. Then more poignant than all other argument was the fact that he did not want to take her away from Surprise Valley. He resisted all thought of that. He had brought her to the most beautiful and wildest place of the uplands. He had saved her, nursed her back to strength, watched her bloom as one of the valley lilies. He knew her life there to be pure and sweet. She belonged to him, and he loved her. Still, these were not all the reasons why he did not want to take her away. Where could they go? He feared the rustlers, he feared the riders, he feared the Mormons. And if he should ever succeed in getting Bess safely away from these immediate perils, he feared the sharp eyes of women and their tongues, the big outside world with its problems of existence. He must wait to decide her future, which, after all, was deciding his own. But between her future and his, something hung impending like balancing rock, which waited darkly over the steep gorge, ready to close forever the outlet to Deception Pass. That nameless thing, as certain yet intangible as fate, must fall and close forever all doubts and fears of the future. I've dreamed, muttered Venters as he rose. Well, why not? To dream is happiness. But let me just once see this clearly, wholly. Then I can go on dreaming till the thing falls. I got to tell Jane Witherstein. I've dangerous trips to make. I've work here to make comfort for this girl. She's mine. I'll fight to keep her safe from that old life. I've already seen her forget it. I love her. And if a beast ever rises in me, I'll burn my hand off before I lay it on her with shameful intent. And by God, sooner or later, I'll kill the man who hid her and kept her in Deception Pass. As he spoke, the west wind softly blew in his face. It seemed to soothe his passion. That west wind was fresh, cool, fragrant, and it carried a sweet, Strange burden of far-off things, tidings of life in other climes, of sunshine asleep on other walls, of other places where reigned peace. It carried, too, sad truth of human hearts and mystery, of promise and hope unquenchable. Surprise Valley was only a little niche in the wide world whence blew that burdened wind. Bess was only one of millions at the mercy of unknown motive in nature and life. Content had come to venters in the valley. Happiness had breathed in the slow, warm air. Love, as bright as light, 
had hovered over the walls and descended to him. And now on the west wind came a whisper of the eternal triumph of faith over doubt. How much better I am for what has come to me, he exclaimed. I'll let the future take care of itself. Whatever falls, I'll be ready. Venters retraced his steps along the terrace back to the camp and found Bess in the old familiar seat, waiting and watching for his return. I went up by myself to think a little, he explained. You never looked that way before. What, what is it? Won't you tell me? Well, Bess, the fact is I've been dreaming a lot. This valley makes a fellow dream. So I forced myself to think. We can't live this way much longer. Soon I'll simply have to go to Cottonwoods. We need a whole pack train of supplies. I can get... Can you go safely? She interrupted. Well, I'm sure of it. I'll ride through the pass at night. I haven't any fear that Wrangle isn't where I left him. And once on him, Bess, just you wait till you see that horse. Oh, I want to see him. To ride him. But... But, Byrne, this is what troubles me, she said. Will... Will you come back? Give me four days. If I'm not back in four days, you'll know I'm dead. For that only shall keep me. Oh, Bess, I'll come back. There's danger, I wouldn't lie to you. But I can take care of myself. Byrne, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure of it. All my life. I've watched hunted men. I can tell what's in them. And I believe you can ride and shoot and see with any rider of the sage. It's not, not that, I fear. Well, what is it then? Why, why, why should you come back at all? I couldn't leave you here alone. You might change your mind when you get to the village. Among old friends, I won't change my mind. As for old friends, <laughs> he uttered a short, expressive laugh. Then, there, there must be a, a woman. Dark red mantled the clear tan of temple and cheek and neck. Her eyes were eyes of shame, upheld a long moment by intense, straining search for the verification of her fear. Suddenly they drooped, her head fell to her knees. Her hands flew to her hot cheeks. Best look here, said Venters, with a sharpness due to the violence with which he checked his quick, surging emotion. As if compelled against her will, answering to an irresistible voice, Bess raised her head, looked at him with sad, dark eyes, and tried to whisper with tremulous lips. There's no woman, went on Venters deliberately holding her glance with his. Nothing on earth, barring the chances of life, can keep me away. Her face flashed and flushed with the glow of a leaping joy, but like the vanishing of a gleam, it disappeared to leave her as he had never beheld her. I am nothing. I am lost. I am nameless. Do you want me to come back, he asked, with sudden stern coldness. Maybe you want to go back to Oldring, 
That brought her erect, trembling and ashy pale, with dark proud eyes and mute lips refuting his insinuation. Bess, I beg your pardon. I shouldn't have said that. But you angered me. I intend to work, to make a home for you here, to be a... a brother to you, as long as ever you need me. And you must forget what you are, were, I mean, and be happy. When you remember that old life, you are bitter, and it hurts me. I was happy. I shall be very happy. Oh, you're so good that... that it kills me. If I think, I can't believe it. I grow sick with wondering, why? I'm only a... let me say it. Only a lost, nameless... girl of the rustlers. Old Ring's girl, they called me. That you should save me. Be so good and kind. Want to make me happy. Why, it's beyond belief. No wonder I'm wretched at the thought of your leaving me. But I'll be wretched and bitter no more, I promise you. If only I could repay you even a little. You've repaid me a hundredfold. Will you believe me? Believe you? I couldn't do else. Then listen. Saving you. I saved myself. Living here in this valley with you. I've found myself. I've learned to think while I was dreaming. I've never troubled myself about God. But God, or some wonderful spirit, has whispered to me here. I absolutely deny the truth of what you say about yourself. I can't explain it. There are things too deep to tell. Whatever the terrible wrongs you suffered, God holds you blameless. I see that, feel that in you, every moment you are near me. I've a mother and a sister, way back in Illinois. If I could take you to them, tomorrow. If it were true, oh, I might, I might lift my head, she cried. Lift it then, you child, for I swear it's true. She did lift her head with a singular wild grace always a part of her actions, with that old, unconscious intimation of innocence, which always tortured Venters, but now with something more, a spirit rising from the depths that linked itself to his brave words. I've been thinking too, she cried, with quivering smile and swelling breast. I've discovered myself too. I'm young. I'm alive. I'm so full. Oh, I'm a woman. Bess, I believe I can claim credit for that last discovery. Before you, Venter said and laughed. Oh, there's more. There's something I must tell you. Tell it then. When will you go to Cottonwoods? As soon as the storms are past, or the worst of them. I'll tell you before you go. I can't now. I don't know how I shall then, but it must be told. I'll never let you leave me without knowing. For in spite of what you say, there's a chance you mightn't come back. Day after day, the west wind blew across the valley. Day after day, the clouds clustered gray and purple and black. The cliffs sang and the caves rang with old rings knell, and the lightning flashed, the thunder rolled, 
the echoes crashed and crashed, and the rains flooded the valley. Wildflowers sprang up everywhere, swaying with the lengthening grass on the terraces, smiling wanly from shady nooks, peeping wondrously from year-dry crevices of the walls. The valley bloomed into a paradise. Every single moment, from the breaking of the gold bar through the bridge at dawn on to the reddening of rays over the western wall, was one of colorful change. The valley swam in thick, transparent haze, golden at dawn, white and warm at noon, purple in the twilight. At the end of every storm, a rainbow curved down into the leaf-bright forest to shine and fade and leave lingeringly some faint essence of its rosy iris in the air. Venters walked with Bess, once more in a dream, and watched the lights change on the walls and faced the wind out of the west. Always it brought softly to him strange, sweet tidings of far-off things. It blew from a place that was old and whispered of youth. It blew down the grooves of time. It brought a story of the passing hours. It breathed low of fighting men and praying women. It sang clearly the song of love. That ever was the burden of its tidings. Youth in the shady woods, waders through the wet meadows, boy and girl at the hedgerow style, bathers in the booming surf, sweet, idle hours on grassy, windy hills, long strolls down moonlit lanes, everywhere in far-off lands, fingers locked and bursting hearts and longing lips. From all the world, tidings of unquenchable love. Often, in these hours of dreams, he watched the girl and asked himself of what was she dreaming. For the changing light of the valley reflected its gleam and its color and its meaning in the changing light of her eyes. He saw in them infinitely more than he saw in his dreams. He saw thought and soul and nature, strong vision of life. All tidings the west wind blew from distance and age he found deep in those dark blue depths and found them mysteries solved. Under their wistful shadow he softened and in the softening felt himself grow a sadder, a wiser, and a better man. While the west wind blew its tidings, filling his heart full, teaching him a man's part, the days passed. The purple clouds changed to white, and the storms were over for that summer. I must go now, he said. When? she asked, at once, tonight. I'm glad the time has come. It dragged at me. Go, for you'll come back the sooner. Late in the afternoon, as the ruddy sun split its last flame in the ragged notch of the western wall, Bess walked with Venters along the eastern terrace, up the long, weathered slope, under the great stone bridge. They entered the narrow gorge to climb around the fence, long before built there by Venters. Farther than this, she had never been. Twilight had already fallen in the gorge. It brightened to waning shadow in the wider ascent. 
he showed her balancing rock, of which he had often told her, and explained its sinister leaning over the outlet. Shuddering, she looked down the long, pale incline with its closed-in, toppling walls. What an awful trail! Did you carry me up here? I did, surely, replied he. It frightens me somehow, yet I never was afraid of trails. I'd ride anywhere a horse could go and climb where he couldn't, but there's something fearful here. I feel as, as if the place was watching me. Look at this rock. It's balanced here, balanced perfectly. You know I told you the cliff dwellers cut the rock, and why. But they are gone, and the rock waits. Can't you see, feel, how it waits here? I moved it once, and I'll never dare again. A strong heave would start it. Then it would fall and bang and smash that crag and jar the walls and close forever the outlet to Deception Pass. Huh. When you come back, I'll steal up here and push and push with all my might to roll the rock and close forever the outlet to the pass. She said it lightly, but in the undercurrent of her voice was a heavier note, a ring deeper than any ever given mere play of words. Bess, you can't dare me. Wait till I come back with supplies, then roll the stone. I was in fun. Her voice now throbbed low. Always you must be free to go when you will. Go now. This place presses on me, stifles me. I'm going. But you had something to tell me? Yes. Will you come back? I'll come if I live. But, but you mightn't come. That's possible, of course. It'll take a good deal to kill me. A man couldn't have a faster horse or keener dog. And Bess, I've guns. And I'll use them if I'm pushed. But don't worry. I've faith in you. I'll not worry until after four days. Only because you mightn't come. I must tell you. She lost her voice. Her pale face, her great glowing earnest eyes, seemed to stand alone out of the gloom of the gorge. The dog whined, breaking the silence. I must tell you, because you mightn't come back, she whispered. You must know what, what I think of your goodness, of you. Always I've been tongue-tied. I seemed not to be grateful. It was deep in my heart, even now. If I were other than I am, I couldn't tell you. I'm nothing, only a rustler's girl, nameless, infamous. You've saved me, and I'm, I'm yours to do with as you like, with all my heart and soul. I love you. Chapter 15 Shadows on the Sage Slope In the cloudy, threatening, Waning summer days, shadows lengthened down the sage slope, and Jane Witherstein likened them to the shadows gathering and closing in 
around her life. Mrs. Larkin died, and little Faye was left an orphan, with no known relative. Jane's love redoubled. It was the saving brightness of a darkening hour. Faye turned now to Jane in childish worship. And Jane at last found full expression for the mother longing in her heart. Upon Lassiter, too, Mrs. Larkin's death had some subtle reaction. Before, he had often, without explanation, advised Jane to send Faye back to any Gentile family that would take her in. Passionately and reproachfully and wonderingly, Jane had refused even to entertain such an idea. And now Lassiter never advised it again, grew sadder and quieter in his contemplation of the child and infinitely more gentle and loving. Sometimes Jane had a cold, inexplicable sensation of dread when she saw Lassiter watching Fay. What did the writer see in the future? Why did he, day by day, grow more silent, calmer, cooler, yet sadder in prophetic assurance of something to be? No doubt, Jane thought, the writer, in his almost superhuman power of foresight, saw behind the horizon the dark, lengthening shadows that were soon to crowd and gloom over him and her and little Fay. Jane Witherstein awaited the long-deferred breaking of the storm with a courage and embittered calm that had come to her in her extremity. Hope had not died. Doubt and fear, subservient to her will, no longer gave her sleepless nights and tortured days. Love remained. All that she had loved, she now loved the more. She seemed to feel that she was defiantly flinging the wealth of her love in the face of misfortune and of hate. No day passed, but she prayed for all, and most fervently for her enemies. It troubled her that she had lost, or had never gained, the whole control of her mind. In some measure, reason and wisdom and decision were locked in a chamber of her brain, awaiting a key. Power to think of some things was taken from her. Meanwhile, abiding a day of judgment, she fought ceaselessly to deny the bitter drops in her cup, to tear back the slow, the intangibly slow growth of a hot, corrosive lichen eating into her heart. On the morning of August 10th, Jane, while waiting in the court for Lassiter, heard a clear, ringing report of a rifle. It came from the grove, somewhere toward the corrals. Jane glanced out in alarm. The day was dull, windless, soundless. The leaves of the cottonwoods drooped, as if they had foretold the doom of Witherstein House, and were now ready to die and drop and decay. Never had Jane seen such shade. She pondered on the meaning of the report. Revolver shots had of late cracked from different parts of the grove, spies taking snapshots at Lassiter from a cowardly distance. But a rifle report meant more. Riders seldom used rifles. Judkins and Venters were the exceptions she called to mind. Had the men who hounded her, hidden in her grove, taken to the rifle to rid her of Lassiter, her last friend? It was probable. It was likely. And she did not share his cool assumption that his death would never come at the hands of a Mormon. 
Long had she expected it. His constancy to her, his singular reluctance to use the fatal skill for which he was famed, both now plain to all Mormons, laid him open to inevitable assassination. Yet what charm against ambush and aim and enemy he seemed to bear about him? No, Jane reflected, it was not charm, only a wonderful training of eye and ear and sense of impending peril. Nevertheless, that could not forever avail against secret attack. That moment, a rustling of leaves attracted her attention. Then the familiar clinking accompaniment of a slow, soft, measured step. And Lassiter walked into the court. Jane, there's a fellow out there with a long gun, he said, and removing his sombrero, showed his head bound in a bloody scarf. I heard the shot. I knew it was meant for you. Let me see. You can't be badly injured. I reckon not. But maybe it wasn't a close call. I'll sit here in this corner where nobody can see me from the grove. He untied the scarf and removed it to show a long, bleeding furrow above his left temple. It's only a cut, said Jane. But how it bleeds. Hold your scarf over it just a moment till I come back. She ran into the house and returned with bandages. And while she bathed and dressed the wound, Lassiter talked. That feller had a good chance to get me, but he must have flinched when he pulled the trigger. As I dodged down, I saw him run through the trees. He had a rifle. I've been expecting that kind of gunplay. I reckon now I'll have to keep a little closer hid myself. These fellers all seem to get chilly or shaky when they draw a beat on me, but... One of them might just happen to hit me. Won't you go away? Leave Cottonwoods as I've begged you to? Before someone does happen to hit you? She appealed to him. I reckon I'll stay. But, oh, Lassiter, your blood will be on my hands. See here, lady. Look at your hands now, right now. Aren't they fine, firm, white hands? Aren't they bloody now? Lassiter's blood. That's a queer thing to stain your beautiful hands. But if you can only see deeper, you'll find a redder color of blood. Heart color, Jane. Oh, my friend. No, Jane. I'm not one to quit when the game grows hot. No more than you. This game, though, is new to me. And I don't know the moves yet. Else I wouldn't have stepped in front of that bullet. Have you no desire to hunt the man who fired at you to find him and and kill him? Well, I reckon I haven't any great hankering for that. Oh, the wonder of it. I knew. I prayed. I trusted. Lassiter, I almost gave all myself to soften you to Mormons. Thank God. And thank you, my friend. But selfish woman that I am, this is no great test. What's the life of one of those sneaking cowards to such a man as you? I think of your great hate toward him who... I think of your life's implacable purpose. Can it be... Wait. Listen, he whispered. I hear a horse. He rose noiselessly, with his ear to the breeze. Suddenly he pulled his sombrero down over his bandaged head, and swinging his gun sheaths round in front, he stepped into the alcove. It's a horse. Coming fast, he added. Jane's listening ear soon caught a faint 
rapid, rhythmic beat of hoofs. It came from the sage. It gave her a thrill that she was at a loss to understand. The sound rose stronger, louder. Then came a clear, sharp difference when the horse passed from the sage trail to the hard-packed ground of the grove. It became a ringing run, swift in its bell-like clatterings, yet singular in longer pause than usual between the hoofbeats of a horse. It's Wrangle! It's Wrangle! cried Jane Witherstein. I'd know him from a million horses! Excitement and thrilling expectancy flooded out all Jane Witherstein's calm. A tight band closed round her breast as she saw the giant sorrel flit in reddish-brown flashes across the openings in the green. Then he was pounding down the lane, thundering into the court, crashing his great iron-shod hoofs on the stone flags. Wrangle it was, surely, but shaggy and wild-eyed and sage-streaked, with dust-caked lather staining his flanks. He reared and crashed down and plunged. The rider leaped off, threw the bridle, and held hard on a lasso, looped round Wrangle's head and neck. Janet's heart sank as she tried to recognize Venters in the rider. Something familiar struck her in the lofty stature and the sweep of powerful shoulders. But this bearded, long-haired, unkempt man who wore ragged clothes patched with pieces of skin and boots that showed bare legs and feet, this dusty, dark, and wild rider could not possibly be Venters. Whoa, Wrangle, old boy, come down. Easy now, so, so, so. You're home, old boy, and presently you can have a drink of water you'll remember. In the voice, Jane knew the rider to be Venters. He tied Wrangle to the hitching rack and turned to the court. Oh, burn, you wild man, she exclaimed. Jane? Jane, it's good to see you. Hello, Lassiter. Yes, it's Venters. Like rough iron, his hard hand crushed Jane's. In it, she felt the difference she saw in him. Wild, rugged, unshorn, yet how splendid. He had gone away a boy. He had returned a man. He appeared taller, wider of shoulder, deeper chested, more powerfully built. But was that only her fancy? He had always been a young giant. Was the change one of spirit? He might have been absent for years, proven by fire and steel, grown like Lassiter, strong and cool and sure. His eyes, were they keener, more flashing than before, met hers with clear, frank, warm regard, in which perplexity was not, nor discontent, nor pain. Look at me as long as you like, he said with a laugh. I'm not much to look at, and Jane, neither you nor Lassiter can brag. You're paler than I ever saw you. Lassiter here, he wears a bloody bandage under his hat. That reminds me. Someone took a flying shot at me down in the sage. It made Wrangle run some. Well, perhaps you've more to tell me than I've got to tell you. Briefly, in few words, Jane outlined the circumstances of her undoing in the weeks of his absence. Under his beard and bronze, she saw his face whiten in terrible wrath. Lassiter, what held you back? No time in the long period of fiery moments and sudden shocks had Jane Witherstein ever beheld Lassiter 
as calm and serene and cool as then. Jane had gloom enough without my adding to it by shooting up the village, he said. As strange as Lassiter's coolness was Venter's curious, intent scrutiny of them both, and under it Jane felt a flaming tide wave from bosom to temples. Well, you're right, he said with slow pause. It surprises me a little, that's all. Jane sensed, then, a slight alteration in Venters, and what it was in her own confusion she could not tell. It had always been her intention to acquaint him with the deceit she had fallen to in her zeal to move Lassiter. She did not mean to spare herself, yet now, at the moment, before these writers, it was an impossibility to explain. Venters was speaking somewhat haltingly, without his former frankness. I found Oldring's hiding place and your red herd. I learned, I know, I'm sure there was a deal between Tull and Oldring. He paused and shifted his position and his gaze. He looked as if he wanted to say something that he found beyond him. Sorrow and pity and shame seemed to contend for mastery over him. Then he raised himself and spoke with effort. Jane, I've cost you too much. You almost ruined yourself for me. It was wrong, for I'm not worth it. I never deserved such friendship. Well, maybe it's not too late. You must give me up. Mind, I haven't changed. I am just the same as ever. I'll see Tull while I'm here, and tell him to his face. Burn, it's too late, said Jane. I'll make him believe, cried Venters violently. You ask me to break our friendship? Yes. If you don't, I shall. Forever? Forever. Jane sighed. Another shadow had lengthened down the sage slope to cast further darkness upon her. A melancholy sweetness pervaded her resignation. The boy who had left her had returned a man, nobler, stronger, one in whom she divined something unbending as steel. There might come a moment later when she would wonder why she had not fought against his will. But just now, she yielded to it. She liked him as well, nay more, she thought. Only her emotions were deadened by the long, menacing wait for the bursting storm. Once before, she had held out her hand to him. When she gave it. Now she stretched it tremblingly forth in acceptance of the decree circumstance had laid upon them. Venters bowed over it, kissed it, pressed it hard, and half stifled a sound very like a sob. Certain it was that when he raised his head, tears glistened in his eyes. Some women have a hard lot, he said huskily. Then he shook his powerful form, and his rags lashed about him. I'll say a few things to tell when I meet him. Burn, you'll not draw on Tull. Oh, that must not be. Promise me. I'll promise you this, he interrupted, in stern passion that thrilled while it terrorized her. If you say one more word for that plotter, I'll kill him as I would a mad coyote. Jane clasped her hands. Was this fire-eyed man the one whom she had once made as wax to her touch? 
Had venters become Lassiter and Lassiter venters? I'll say no more, she faltered. Jane, Lassiter once called you blind, said Venters. They must be true. But I won't upbraid you. Only don't rouse the devil in me by praying for Tull. I'll try to keep cool when I meet him, that's all. Now there's one more thing I want to ask of you. The last. I found a valley down in the pass. It's a wonderful place. I intend to stay there. It's so hidden I believe no one can find it. There's good water and browse and game. I want to raise corn and stock. I need to take in supplies. Will you give them to me? Assuredly. The more you take, the better you'll please me, and perhaps the less my... my enemies will get. Venters, I reckon you'll have trouble packing anything away, put in Lassiter. I'll go at night. Maybe that wouldn't be best. You'd sure be stopped. You'd better go early in the morning, say just after dawn. That's the safest time to move around here. Lassiter, I'll be hard to stop, returned Venters darkly. I reckon so. Burn, said Jane. Go first to the writer's quarters and get yourself a complete outfit. You're a, a sight. Then help yourself to whatever else you need. Burrows, packs, grain, dried fruits, and meat. You must take coffee and sugar and flour, all kinds of supplies. Don't forget corn and seeds. I remember how you used to starve. Please, please, take all you can pack away from here. I'll make a bundle for you, which you mustn't open till you're in your valley. How I'd like to see it. To judge by you and Wrangle how wild it must be. Jane walked down into the outer court and approached the sorrel. Upstarting, he laid back his ears and eyed her. Wrangle, dear old Wrangle, she said, and put a caressing hand on his matted mane. Oh, he's wild, but he knows me. Burn, can he run as fast as ever? Run? Jane, he's done sixty miles since last night at dark, and I could make him kill Black Star right now in a ten-mile race. He never could, protested Jane. He couldn't even if he was fresh. I reckon maybe the best horse'll prove himself yet, said Lassiter. And Jane, if it ever comes to that race, I'd like you to be on Wrangle. I'd like that too, rejoined Venters. But Jane, maybe Lassiter's hint is extreme. Bad as your prospects are, you'll surely never come to the running point. Who knows? She replied with a mournful smile. No. No, Jane. It can't be so bad as all that. Soon as I see Tull, there'll be a change in your fortunes. I'll hurry down to the village. Now don't worry. Jane retired to the seclusion of her room. Lassiter's subtle forecasting of disaster, Venters's forced optimism, neither remained in mind. Material loss weighed nothing in the balance with other losses she was sustaining. She wondered dully at her sitting there, hands folded listlessly with a kind of numb deadness to the passing of time and the passing of her riches. She thought of Venters's friendship. She had not lost that, but she had lost him. Lassiter's friendship, that was more than love. It would endure but soon he, too, would be gone. 
little Faye slept dreamlessly upon the bed, her golden curls streaming over the pillow. Jane had the child's worship. Would she lose that too? And if she did, what then would be left? Conscience thundered at her that there was left her religion. Conscience thundered that she should be grateful on her knees for this baptism of fire, that through misfortune, sacrifice, and suffering, her soul might be fused pure gold. But the old spontaneous, rapturous spirit no more exalted her. She wanted to be a woman, not a martyr. Like the saint of old who mortified his flesh, Jane Witherstein had in her the temper for heroic martyrdom, if by sacrificing herself she could save the souls of others. But here the damnable verdict blistered her, that the more she sacrificed herself, the blacker grew the souls of her churchmen. There was something terribly wrong with her soul, something terribly wrong with her churchmen and her religion. In the whirling gulf of her thought, there was yet one shining light to guide her, to sustain her in her hope and it was that, despite her errors and her frailties and her blindness, she had one absolute and unfaltering hold on ultimate and supreme justice. That was love. Love your enemies as yourself was a divine word, entirely free from any church or creed. Jane's meditations were disturbed by Lassiter's soft, tinkling step in the court. Always he wore the clinking spurs. Always he was in readiness to ride. She passed out and called him into the huge, dim hall. I think you'll be safer here. The court is too open, she said. I reckon, replied Lassiter. And it's cooler here. The day's sure muggy. Well, I went down to the village with Venters. Already? Where is he? queried Jane in quick amaze. He's at the corrals. Blake's helping him get the burrows and packs ready. That Blake is a good fellow. Did... did burn meat tall? I guess he did, answered Lassiter, and he laughed dryly. Tell me. Oh, you exasperate me. You're so cool, so calm. For heaven's sake, tell me what happened. First time I've been in the village for weeks, went on Lassiter mildly. I reckon there ain't been more of a show for a long time. Me and Venters walking down the road, it was funny. I ain't seen anybody was particularly glad to see us. I'm not much thought of hereabouts. And Venters, he sure looks like what you called him, a wild man. Well, there was some running of folks before we got to the stores. Then everybody vamoosed except some surprised rustlers in front of a saloon. Venters went right in the stores and saloons, and of course I went along. I didn't know which tickled me the most. The actions of many fellas we met are Venter's nerve. Jane, I was downright glad to be along. You see, that sort of thing is my element, and I've been away from it for a spell. But we didn't find Tull in one of them places. Some Gentile feller at last told Venter's he'd find Tull in that long building next to Parson's store. It's a kind of meeting room, and sure enough, when we peeped in, it was half full of men. Venters yelled, Don't anybody pull guns. We ain't come for that. Then he trampled in, and I was some put to keep alongside him. 
There was a hard scraping sound of feet, a loud cry, and then some whispering. And after that, stillness you could cut with a knife. Tull was there, and that fat party who once tried to throw a gun on me, and other important-looking men, and that little frog-legged feller who was with Tull the other day I rode in here. I wish you could have seen their faces, especially Tull's and the fat parties. But there ain't no use of me trying to tell you how they looked. Well, Venters and I stood there in the middle of the room with that batch of men all in front of us, and not a blamed one of them winked an eyelash or moved a finger. It was natural, of course, for me to notice many of them packed guns. That's a way of mine. First, noticing them things. Venters spoke up, and his voice sort of chilled and cut, and he told Tull he had a few things to say. Here Lassiter paused while he turned his sombrero round and round in his familiar habit, and his eyes had the look of a man seeing over again some thrilling spectacle, and under his red bronze there was strange animation. Like a shot, then, Venters told Tull that the friendship between you and him was all over, and he was leaving your place. He said you'd both of you broken off in the hope of propitiating your people but you hadn't changed your mind otherwise and never would. Next he spoke up for you. I ain't going to tell you what he said. Only, no other woman who ever lived, ever had such a tribute. You had a champion, Jane, and never fear that those thick-skulled men don't know you now. It couldn't be otherwise. He spoke the ringing, lightning truth. Then he accused Tull of the underhand, miserable robbery of a helpless woman. He told Tull where the red herd was, of a deal made with Aldrin, that Jerry Card had made the deal. I thought Tull was going to drop, and that little frog-legged cuss, he looked some limp and white. But Venters' voice would have kept anybody's legs from buckling. I was stiff myself. He went on and called Tull, Called him every bad name ever known to a rider, and then some. He cursed Tull. I never heard a man get such a cursing. He laughed in scorn at the idea of Tull being a minister. He said Tull and a few more dogs of hell builded their empire out of the hearts of such innocent and God-fearing women as Jane Witherstein. He called Tull a binder of women, a callous beast who hid behind a mock mantle of righteousness and the last and lowest coward on the face of the earth to prey on weak women through their religion. That was the last unspeakable crime. Then he finished, and by this time he'd almost lost his voice. But his whisper was enough. Tull, he said, she begged me not to draw on you today. She would pray for you if you burned her at the stake. But listen, I swear, if you and I ever come face to face again, I'll kill you. We backed out of the door then and up the road, but nobody followed us. Jane found herself weeping passionately. She had not been conscious of it till Lassiter ended his story and she experienced exquisite pain and relief in shedding tears. Long had her eyes been dry, her grief deep. Long had her emotions been dumb. 
Lassiter's story put her on the rack. The appalling nature of Venters's act and speech had no parallel as an outrage. It was worse than bloodshed. Men like Tull had been shot. But had one ever been so terribly denounced in public? Overmounting her horror, an uncontrollable, quivering passion shook her very soul. It was sheer human glory in the deed of a fearless man. It was hot, primitive instinct to live, to fight. It was a kind of mad joy in Venters' chivalry. It was close to the wrath that had first shaken her in the beginning of this war waged upon her. Well, well, Jane, don't take it that way, said Lassiter in evident distress. I had to tell you. There's some things a fellow just can't keep. It's strange to give up on hearing that when all this long time you've been the gamest woman I ever seen. But I don't know women. Maybe there's reason for you to cry. I know this. Nothing ever rang in my soul and so filled it as what Venters did. I'd like to have done it, but I'm only good for throwing a gun. And it seems you hate that. Well, I'll be going now. Where? Venters took Wrangle to the stable. The sorrel's shy a shoe, and I've got to help hold the big devil and put on another. Tell Byrne to come for the pack I want to give him, and, and to say goodbye, called Jane as Lassiter went out. Jane passed the rest of that day in a vain endeavor to decide what and what not to put in the pack for Venters. This task was the last she would ever perform for him, and the gifts were the last she would ever make him. So she picked and chose and rejected and chose again and often paused in sad reverie and began again, till at length she filled the pack. It was about sunset and she and Fay had finished supper and were sitting in the court, when Venters's quick steps rang on the stones. She scarcely knew him, for he had changed the tattered garments, and she missed the dark beard and long hair. Still, he was not the Venters of old. As he came up the steps, she felt herself pointing to the pack and heard herself speaking words that were meaningless to her. He said goodbye. He kissed her, released her, and turned away. His tall figure blurred in her sight, grew dim through dark, streaked vision, and then he vanished. Twilight fell around Witherstein House, and dusk and night. Little Faye slept, but Jane lay with strained, aching eyes. She heard the wind moaning in the cottonwoods and mice squeaking in the walls. The night was interminably long, yet she prayed to hold back the dawn. What would another day bring forth? The blackness of her room seemed blacker for the sad, entering gray of morning light. She heard the chirp of awakening birds and fancied she caught a faint clatter of hoofs. Then low, dull, distant, throbbed a heavy gunshot. She had expected it, was waiting for it. Nevertheless, an electric shock checked her heart, froze the very living fiber of her bones. That vice-like hold on her faculties apparently did not relax for a long time, and it was a voice under her window that released her. Jane! Jane! 
softly called Lassiter. She answered somehow. It's all right. Venters got away. I thought maybe you'd heard that shot, and I was worried some. What was it? Who fired? Well, some fool feller tried to stop Venters out there in the sage, and he only stopped lead. I think it'll be all right. I haven't seen or heard of any other fellas around. Venters will go through safe. And Jane, I've got Bell saddled, and I'm going to trail Venters. Mind, I won't show myself unless he falls foul of somebody and needs me. I want to see if this place where he's going is safe for him. He says nobody can track him there. I never seen the place yet I couldn't track a man to. Now, Jane, you stay indoors while I'm gone and keep close watch on Fay, will you? Yes. Oh, yes. And another thing, Jane. He continued, then paused for long. Another thing. If you ain't here when I come back, if you're gone, don't fear. I'll trail you. I'll find you out. My dear Lassiter, where could I be gone, as you put it? Asked Jane in curious surprise. I reckon you might be somewhere. Maybe tied in an old barn, or corralled in some gulch, or chained in a cave. Millie Earn was, till she give in. Maybe that's news to you. Well... If you're gone, I'll hunt for you. No, Lassiter, she replied, sadly and low. If I'm gone, just forget the unhappy woman whose blinded selfish deceit you repaid with kindness and love. She heard a deep, muttering curse under his breath, and then the silvery tinkling of his spurs as he moved away. Jane entered upon the duties of that day with a settled, gloomy calm. Disaster hung in the dark clouds, in the shade, in the humid west wind. Blake, when he reported, appeared without his usual cheer, and Jurd wore a harassed look of a worn and worried man. And when Judkins put in appearance, riding a lame horse and dismounted with the cramp of a rider, his dust-covered figure and his darkly grim, almost dazed expression told Jane of dire calamity. She had no need of words. Miss Witherstein, I have to report loss of the white herd, said Judkins hoarsely. Come sit down. You look played out, replied Jane solicitously. She brought him brandy and food and while he partook of refreshments, of which he appeared badly in need, she asked no questions. No one rider could have done more, Miss Witherstein, he went on presently. Judkins, don't be distressed. You've done more than any other rider. I've long expected to lose the white herd. It's no surprise. It's in line with other things that are happening. I'm grateful for your service. Miss Witherstein, I knew how you'd take it. But if anything, that makes it harder to tell. You see, a fellow wants to do so much for you, and I'd got fond of my job. We led the herd a ways off to the north of the break in the valley. There was a big level and pools of water and tip-top brows. But the cattle was in a high, nervous condition, wild, as wild as antelope. 
You see, they'd been so scared, they never slept. I ain't going to tell you of the many tricks that were pulled off out there in the sage. But there wasn't a day for weeks that the herd didn't get started to run. We always managed to ride them close and drive them back and keep them bunched. Honest, Miss Witherstein, them steers was thin. They was thin when water and grass was everywhere. Thin at this season. They'll tell you how your steers was pestered. For instance, one night a strange running streak of fire run right through the herd. That streak was a coyote with an oiled and blazing tail. For I shot it and found out. We had hell with the herd that night. And if the sage and grass hadn't been wet, we, horses, steers and all, would have burned up. But I said I wasn't going to tell you any of the tricks. Strange now, Miss Witherstein. When the stampede did come, it was from natural cause. Just a whirling devil of dust. You've seen the like often. And this wasn't no big whirl, for the dust was mostly settled. It had dried out in a little swale, and ordinarily no steer would ever have run for it. But the herd was nervous and wild. And just as Lassiter said, when that bunch of white steers got to moving, they was as bad as buffalo. I've seen some buffalo stampedes back in Nebraska, and this bolt of the steers was the same kind. I tried to mill the herd just as Lassiter did, but I wasn't equal to it, Miss Witherstein. I don't believe the rider lives who could have turned that herd. We kept along with the herd for miles, and more than one of my boys tried to get the steers a milling. It wasn't no use. We got off level ground, going down, and then the steers ran something fierce. We left the little gullies and washes level full of dead steers. Finally, I saw the herd was making to pass a kind of low pocket between ridges. There was a hogback, as we used to call them, a pile of rocks sticking up, and I saw the herd was going to split round it or swing out to the left, and I wanted them to go to the right, so maybe we'd be able to drive them into the pocket. So with all my boys except three, I rode hard to turn the herd a little to the right. We couldn't budge them. They went on them, split round the rocks, and the most of them was turned sharp to the left by a deep wash we hadn't seen. Had no chance to see. The other three boys, Jimmy Vale, Joe Willis, and that little Karen's boy, a nervy kid, they, with Karen's leading, tried to buck that herd round to the pocket. It was a wild, fool idea. I couldn't do nothing. The boys got hemmed in between the steers and the wash. They had no chance to see either. Vale and Willis was run down right before our eyes, and Cairns rode a fine horse. He did some riding i never seen equaled, and would have beat the steers if there'd been any room to run in. I was high up and could see how the steers kept spilling by twos and threes over into the wash. Cairns put his horse to a place that was too wide for any horse, and broke his neck, and the horses too. We found that out after. And as for Vale and Willis, two thousand steers ran over the poor boys. There wasn't much left to pack home for burying. And Miss Witherstein, that all happened yesterday. And I believe if the white herd didn't run over the wall of the pass, it's running yet. On the morning of the second day after Judkins's recital, during which time Jane remained indoors, a prey to regret and sorrow for the boy riders, and a new and now strangely insistent fear for her own person, she again heard what she had missed more than she dared honestly confess. 
the soft, jingling step of Lassiter. Almost overwhelming relief surged through her, a feeling as akin to joy as anything she could have been capable of in those gloomy hours of shadow, and one that suddenly stunned her with the significance of what Lassiter had come to mean to her. She had begged him, for his own sake, to leave Cottonwoods. She might yet beg that, if her weakening courage permitted her to dare absolute loneliness and helplessness, but she realized now that if she were left alone, her life would become one long, hideous nightmare. When his soft steps clinked into the hall in answer to her greeting, and his tall, black-garbed form filled the door, she felt an inexpressible sense of immediate safety. In his presence she lost her fear of the dim passageways of Witherstein House, and of every sound. Always it had been that, when he entered the court or the hall, she had experienced a distinctly sickening but gradually lessening shock at the sight of the huge black guns swinging at his sides. This time the sickening shock again visited her. It was, however, because a revealing flash of thought told her that it was not alone Lassiter who was thrillingly welcome, but also his fatal weapons. They meant so much. How she had fallen! How broken and spiritless must she be to have still the same old horror of Lassiter's guns and his name, yet feel somehow a cold, shrinking protection in their law and might and use. Did you trail Venters? Find his wonderful valley? she asked eagerly. Yes, and I reckon it's sure a wonderful place. Is he safe there? That's been bothering me some. I tracked him, and part of the trail was the hardest I ever tackled. Maybe there's a rustler or somebody in this country who's as good at tracking as I am. If that's so, Venters ain't safe. Well, tell me all about Burn and his valley. To Jane's surprise, Lassiter showed disinclination for further talk about his trip. He appeared to be extremely fatigued. Jane reflected that 120 miles, with probably a great deal of climbing on foot, all in three days, was enough to tire any rider. Moreover, it presently developed that Lassiter had returned in a mood of singular sadness and preoccupation. She put it down to a moodiness over the loss of her white herd and the now precarious condition of her fortune. Several days passed, and as nothing happened, Jane's spirits began to brighten. Once in her musings, she thought that this tendency of hers to rebound was as sad as it was futile. Meanwhile, she had resumed her walks through the grove with little Fay. One morning she went as far as the sage. She had not seen the slope since the beginning of the rains, and now it bloomed a rich, deep purple. There was a high wind blowing, and the sage tossed and waved and colored beautifully from light to dark. Clouds scudded across the sky, and their shadows sailed darkly down the sunny slope. Upon her return toward the house, she went by the lane to the stables, and she had scarcely entered the great open space with its corrals and sheds when she saw Lassiter hurriedly approaching. Faye broke from her, and running to a corral fence, began to pat and pull the long, hanging ears of a drowsy burrow. One look at Lassiter armed her for a blow. Without a word, 
he led her across the wide yard to the rise of the ground upon which the stable stood. Jane, look, he said, and pointed to the ground. Jane glanced down, and again, and upon steadier vision, made out splotches of blood on the stones, and broad, smooth marks in the dust, leading out toward the sage. What made these? she asked. I reckon somebody has dragged dead or wounded men out to where there was horses in the sage. Dead or wounded men? I reckon. Jane, are you strong? Can you bear up? His hands were gently holding hers, and his eyes. Suddenly she could no longer look into them. Strong? She echoed, trembling. I... I will be. Up the stone flag drive, Nicked with the marks made by the iron-shod hoofs of her racers, Lassiter led her, his grasp ever growing firmer. Where's Blake? And, and Jerb? she asked, haltingly. I don't know where Jerb is. Bolted, most likely, replied Lassiter, as he took her through the stone door. But Blake, poor Blake, he's gone forever. Be prepared, Jane. With a cold prickling of her skin, with a queer thrumming in her ears, with fixed and staring eyes, Jane saw a gun lying at her feet with chamber swung and empty, and discharged shells scattered near. Outstretched upon the stable floor lay Blake, ghastly white, dead, one hand clutching a gun and the other twisted in his bloody blouse. Wherever the thieves were, whether your people or rustlers, Blake killed some of them, said Lassiter. Thieves, whispered Jane, I reckon. Horse thieves, look. Lassiter waved his hand toward the stalls. The first stall, Bell's stall, was empty. All the stalls were empty. No racer whinnied and stamped greeting to her. Night was gone. Black Star was gone. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 7 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. 